0: Welcome to Mind, Body, Health & Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health & Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community, and I say it strongly, because I believe that we human beings are basically friendly, tribal animals. And when we associate with one another in small enough groups where we know each other by name or at least by face, we're very collaborative. We like to do things together. We like to hang out together. We create. We do science. We do play. We do sports. We do lots of things together, and we enjoy ourselves. But at the very same time, we also must be aware of the fact that there are a small percentage of us that are very different. These people are predators. They're avaricious. They don't believe in democracy and republic. They believe in dictatorships. They believe in top-down rather than we're all in this together. And it's our responsibility as citizens to be aware of these folks. These are the folks who tried to take over the Capitol on January 6th. These are the folks who would put a dictator possibly in power, even though these are tough times. There are tough times for many of us paying rent and paying for food. But at the same time as citizens, we must stay awake and aware, and we must exercise our voting rights. In the name of my hero, or certainly one of my heroes, Thomas Jefferson. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I have the distinct pleasure and privilege of having with us Dr. Ira Bayok. Many of you have already heard of him. He's a household name in my home because my wife was with hospice for 10 years. Dr. Ira Bayok is a pioneer and major player in the field of palliative care. He is He is emeritus professor at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. I hope I pronounced that right, Ira. It's. He is director of palliative medicine at Dartmouth Hitchcock Center. He's the founder and chief medical officer emeritus at. No, no. At, at yes, at emeritus, I believe we'll find out. At Providence Saint Joseph Hospital Institute in Torrance, California, it's actually the Providence. Health Institute for Human Caring, which is very important in that title. He's the author of many books. You want to go to Google or Amazon and read at least one of his books. The groundbreaking book was Dying Well. The one we're going to talk more about today is The Best Care Possible. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Ira. Wonderful to have you with us here today. Great to be with you. Thanks for asking. You have made a major contribution, as you know, you're a pioneer and contributed to this entire field of, of palliative care. And I'd like to start from the beginning because many people don't even know what palliative care is, even at this time. And even though you wrote this wonderful book, The Best Care Possible, one of your many books, 12, it's 10 years ago, actually, you wrote it in 2012. It's and twelve. It's, It's—it's—it's more than that. It's, it's now 11 years. But people still don't know. So take it from the top for us and tell us what is palliative care?
1: You know, palliative care is a, a team based approach to the care of people living with serious illness and the care for their families who are who their caregivers and who are going through the illness with an individual. Palliative care brings an interdisciplinary team approach to people's physical well being, as well as their emotional, social, interpersonal, and spiritual well-being during the course of an illness. It grew out of a hospice base. In in the United States, palliative care actually grew from hospice care and therefore is often conflated with quote-unquote end-of-life care. But palliative care really is a, is a similar approach to people with their family that is not restricted to somebody acknowledging that they are dying they simply living with serious illness. Again, often people are, who are being cared for by palliative care teams are also receiving disease-based treatments, whether it be for their heart failure or their cancer or their neurologic disorder. And it's kind of that team of teams approach that I think is, is part of giving people the very best care we can through difficult times of illness and caregiving and sometimes Approaching the end of life. People
0: associate hospice, certainly those of us who know about hospice, and I think the public is learning more and more about it. We associate hospice with being told that we have more or less six months to live. There's a six month period associated with hospice. Is there a
1: time frame associated with palliative care, or how does that work? No, there's not, which is a key distinction. You know, hospice, uh, when it began, was this interdisciplinary, team-based approach for people who are uh, living with an incurable, progressive condition. So that it is a preparation for uh, life completion and closure. But in the United States, hospice kind of overlearned the requirements that came from Medicare funding hospice. And Medicare imposed regulatory requirements... That really have constrained hospice in ways that frankly required hospice to give birth to, to a, a larger framework of palliative care. So in in the United States, it's really not even enough to be seriously ill to get hospice care. You have to be quote unquote dying. And in fact, it's not enough to be dying to get hospice care in the United States under Medicare. You also have to agree you are dying. Something which legitimately people are reluctant to do, and you have to be willing to forego treatments for your disease that might help you live longer. Think of uh late stage cancer treatments, which over the course of you know forty plus years of my career late stage cancer treatments have gotten pretty good they it's not it's not like it was back in the 1980s and some late stage cancer treatments you you'd like to say yes to there's no Clinically, there's no need for people to give up one to get the other. But Medicare poses a requirement that you give up treatment for your cancer, for instance, to receive this remarkable team based approach for your comfort and well being and your family's well being. So hospice care really has painted itself into a bit of a corner. And palliative care takes the same proven approach to comprehensive whole person caring and takes away the terrible choice, if you will, of, of having to forego one thing to get the other.
0: So with palliative care, you both get the team approach to taking care of you, the, when I say you, capital U, all of you. And at the same time, you can continue to get your medical care. Yeah. So if there are possibilities you're extending your life or going on to live, you can have both. That's correct.
1: And that makes that that fits the uh, reality of 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 contemporary health care for some even very late stage treatments uh, uh, or conditions such as congestive heart failure and some cancers, late stage treatments, uh, you know, can be continued. They don't they don't diminish the quality of people's lives, not always at least. They don't have that many side effects. I'm thinking particularly of congestive heart failure treatments. And it would be an imposition and not really clinically required to give up one to get the other. Why not do both? And by the way, the, the, the usual unsophisticated question is, well, it would cost too much to do both. Turns out that's wrong. It costs too much not to do both because when people gets, are seriously ill, if there's a problem, they legitimately go to the emergency department and to the hospital. If you can meet people's needs in a fashion that allows them to stay home in the context of their family, but really legitimately meet their needs, you end up saving money over the total costs of people's health care.
0: I reached out to you, Ira, even though your book is 11 years old, in part because the book is so important. Thank you. In part because all of us are going to face these issues at some point. Well, I take that back. Almost all of us are going to face these issues. There are people who won't. Some will just die, and will die in our sleep, That's or will right. die by an accident, or will die That's by right. other. Stuff. But a v- the vast majority of us are going to need this kind of care. So partly because we need the care, partly because be- because the public doesn't know quite what to do with this whole issue. Even now, I also reached out to you because I want you to tell us what's transpired in the last 11 years in the field of palliative care since you've written the book.
1: Well, so thanks for mentioning The Best Care Possible. It it was a labor of love. It took me three full years to, to birth it, if you will. It is a book of stories of real patients and families who I know, um, many of them were cared for within the academic health system of of Dartmouth-Hitchcock in New Hampshire. Uh, some of them come from, some of them are my own friends, and it illuminates the potential for really describing what the best care is for each person. It's not a one-size-fits-all model, right? The best care in, involves making the best of medical diagnostics and therapeutics, and then Applying them in a highly personal fashion to one's personal priorities, one's personal values, what matters most to people, that requires some skillful guidance and a, and clinical expertise, such as palliative care provides. Uh, but it is, you know, I don't know what it is for each individual before I meet a given, let's say, patient who's seriously ill, but I know how to clarify what it is for each individual person so that they feel heard and understood and they are getting their needs met their, their medical needs their symptoms well managed but also full attention to their emotional social spiritual well-being we are in a period of dynamic change in american healthcare and i think my best answer to what the question you answer, have asked as to what's happened in the last 11 years is there are multiple occurrences some of which are are conflicting, if you will. The science of palliative care continues to really blossom beautifully. There is research into symptom management, good counseling techniques, a measurement of quality and, and patients' lived experiences, all of that. There is the, I know you're interested in psychedelics and the research and science of psychedelics and the clinical applications of psychedelics to to patients with serious illness. Uh, is one of the evolving themes, which I think is very hopeful. On the other hand, American medicine is plagued by, pervasively, plagued by uh, greed. Uh, Greed, I would say, is a defining theme of American medicine. And palliative care is not immune to it. And we've seen that happen in hospice care, where over 70% of hospice programs now are for-profit significant, maybe 20 or more percent are publicly traded on Wall Street and a, and a somewhat smaller but potent percentage are private equity owned. It's, it's really hard to imagine as somebody who was here in the late 1970s and early 1980s when hospice was, was blossoming and starting to take over, to think that the for-profit business segment really dominates hospice as an industry is, is a bit challenging. And the same thing I'm seeing happen to palliative care. It's it is the venture capitalists are involved and they are looking to ways to monetize palliative care. Now, let me say I'm not against for-profit health care. I am an American. And I while I would prefer that there was not for-profit health care, it is it is what it is. I actually want the for-profit hospice and palliative care programs to survive and to thrive. I want them to thrive by giving really excellent care. I am not against for-profit health care. I am strongly against bad care. And we can talk about, if you wish, some really disturbing things that are happening in my field of hospice and palliative care, in which people are at high risk of getting bad care. That's not okay.
0: I'm, I'm going to take a sidebar here for a second, and because you mentioned psychedelics and my interest in psychedelics. And I want our listeners to know that you wrote a brilliant article on psychedelics in the Journal of Palliative Medicine. And I want to refer everybody to reading this article, because uh, Dr. Ira Bioch is a specialist in palliative medicine. He's not a specialist in psychedelic medicine. But he has written one of, if not the most brilliant articles on psychedelic medicine than I've ever read. And I've been at looking at psychedelic medicine research for over 50 years. It is, it is really something. And we're going to come back to it later on in the program. But I just have to get that in, Ira, because the, the, your, your article is just, it's fantastic. It is, so, it is so balanced. And that's what I love about it. It is so balanced. It is warning us to be careful. But at the same time, it's telling us not to be nihilistic about it. It's telling us to be skeptical, but not cynical. And that's I, exactly, I just, right. I, exactly right. Exactly and, and, and right. And we'll come back to it. The so that, thing- that
1: article is called Taking Psychedelics Seriously. Yes. I think it was in 2018. I, I kind of came out of the closet, if you will, to my own field to say that, you know, some of us have had experience with psychedelics. And this is something, And I, having watched the literature, the scientific literature evolve over you know, quite a few years, nearly half a century, I I thought it was time to to come out and say it's time for us to take psychedelics seriously. And as you said, I I tried to make a distinction between skepticism and cynicism. And while skepticism is wholly called for, cynicism may may cause harm by avoiding important therapeutic modalities that we should make available to the people we serve.
0: Yes. Coming back to your book, we're going to come back to the psychedelics later. But coming back to your book, The Best Care Possible, if you measure a book by a combination of how much you've learned intellectually and how much you've been touched emotionally, this book is, for me, the top of the class. Oh, thank I, you. You know, I sound like an adoring fan, and maybe I am. Maybe I'm going overboard. I don't mean to be unctuous, but I'm really impressed because I read your book and I cried And I cried on several occasions. I cried when you danced with your cousin Edith after her recovery. And I cried when your friend Herb died because I was rooting for him. I really was rooting for him. And I was just slowly going through the pages, waiting to see what was going to happen. Thank you. And I think our listeners would benefit if you'd be willing to take a case history and tell us about it so that we would get a picture of how palliative care was applied to the particular patient. Is that a reasonable request?
1: Well, sure. There are so many of those stories that still live within me. Part of the reason I, I felt so passionate about writing The Best Care Possible was I, I had to externalize some of this. I had to express and tell some of those stories. There are stories in there that I was... Uh, I I remember being tearful as I was writing one or two of them. I mean, there's Sharon's story of a young woman with cystic fibrosis who uh, who I followed concurrent with her pulmonary doctors. She was she was in her early teens when I first met her, and she was frequently at the Children's Hospital at Dartmouth for exacerbations of her uh, cystic fibrosis, and was often called the Queen of Darkness by the by the uh, Pediatric uh, nurses on at the Children's Hospital at Dartmouth because she would cocoon in her room when when Sharon came into the hospital she would just keep the room dark she would never exactly un uh, unpack her little rolling suitcase it would just she things would spill out from it the only way she could control her life and her physical environment was to choose who she talked with and who she didn't talk with and and she was in the hospital a lot she was had a terrible case of cystic fibrosis what. Well, Many people are living with cystic fibrosis well into their 30s, but, but uh, Sharon's disease was, was very severe. She probably had multiple abnormal alleles, if you will. The, the gene was particularly expressive. Uh, and so it was not just her lungs that were gooed up, but her digestive tract. She ended up developing uh, diabetes and cirrhosis because of the effects of the, uh, of the cystic fibrosis genes was suffering, not just physically, but emotionally, socially, spiritually. Uh, her family was disadvantaged, kind of a bit dysfunctional, lots of, a broken family with financial difficulties and the like. Her mom could only visit on the weekends when when uh, Sharon was in the hospital. And I, while the team that I directed at, at Dartmouth was an adult palliative care team, uh, we did take care of some children. And as initially trained as a family doc, I was often one of the people, if not the person, who kind of took on such cases for their team. Uh, I made it my business to try to create a relationship with Sharon. And it and it took a lot of doing. I, I I had a knock on her door a lot of times. And the first time, you know, the the nurses and a child life specialist encouraged her to meet me. And so I knocked on and said, I, hi, this is Dr. Black. I wanna, can I come in? And she says, oh, I know who you are. You're Dr. Death. Hmm. Oh. That's how our that's that's how our relationship began, and I just would come back and say, you know, just want to check on you, see if see if I could do anything to help. If there's anything I can do to brighten your day today, a common question I ask patients in the hospital. Because of her diabetes, there was not very many treats that Sh- Sharon could have, but she liked these uh, flavored Dasani sugarless sodas. So I would bring her Dasani sodas when you know whatever. I'd go down to the little cafeteria or the internal 7-Eleven type shop in at Dartmouth, and I'd bring her a soda. And she also loved uh, animals. And, you know, she was a bright uh, young woman, and she knew she wasn't going to survive this uh, condition. But she also had this cognitive sort of dissonance, um, uh, Richard, in which she would talk about wanting to be a, a, a veterinary assistant or a groomer when she grew up. Mm-hmm. And I, and so I would talk with her about that. And she, um, uh, every afternoon she would watch, um, on the animal planet. And if you came by to see Sharon when she was watching, uh, this show, there was only two options. You either had to shut up, sit down and watch it with her, or leave and come back. She would quite literally not talk with you if you were, um, if you were there when, when this was on. And so, um, I watched a lot of, uh, this show with Sharon, um, over a period of time, uh, I, I, I realized that she really loved this guy and asked her, uh, why don't you write him a letter? You know, uh, you love this guy, you know, all of his animals on his farm in Western Massachusetts. Um, why don't you write him a letter and and uh, have a dialogue with him? And she said to me, "Oh, I, I, he'd never answer my letter. He'd never get it." I said, "Sharon, you write him a letter. I will get it into his hands. I promise." Um, I had no idea, by the way, when I said that how I would how I would I, get it into his uh, hands. Right. But I I've done harder things than that. Of course. So three three it took three weeks. She worked with the child life specialist. She worked with uh, a, uh, um, the nurses, uh, at Dartmouth, she worked with, um, uh, her mom who came up on the weekends and they, she wrote a, uh, two page handwritten letter to, um, to Jeff, whose name I'm going to find.
0: <laughs> I know, I know you're a researcher. I know your work, so I know exactly what you're doing and you're uh, not going to quit until you find it.
1: I so have to find it. I'll give you a chance. Jeff, Jeff Corwin. His name's Jeff Corwin. Okay, he's good. Quite, he's quite famous. Uh, so, um, she wrote him this three page letter, a two page letter, handwritten letter, and I was able to get it into his hands. It wasn't the hardest thing I've done in my career. Uh I could, I, we know people who know people and I, and that wasn't surprising. What was surprising is he answered her within 48 hours Uh and he invited Sharon to come down and spend a day with him on his farm in Western Massachusetts. The next time I saw her was when she was back in the hospital with another exacerbation. And for the first time in about two years of knowing her, she came over to me and she hugged me. And she said to me, That was the best day of my entire life.
0: Yes, the best medicine you could possibly give her. Now,
1: I just want you to know, and her mom, by the way, confirmed that nowhere in the flow diagrams or the algorithms of treating cystic fibrosis. Is writing Jeff Corwin right? Uh, I had to know this person, this patient, as a whole person. Yes, I had to be able to to kind of uh, listen to her story as if I was the speaker. Look through, look at the future as if I were to the extent my imagination allows me, looking through her eyes. Right, and then there was something achievable that was bright there. Right. And together, shoulder to shoulder with Sharon, we made that happen. Now, I would say that's palliative care. What I haven't mentioned is, yes, we were managing her breathlessness. We were she was still getting the you know, that that uh, spit therapy, that cupping and clapping and that that shaking therapy that cystic fibrosis people receive to kind of loosen up their their um, uh, secretions she was still getting diabetes treatments and enzymes for her pancreatic insufficiency and all of that. And her parents were, her mom was getting support, her siblings were getting support. But I met her as a whole person and addressed her not merely in the medical, but in her personal experience of of illness. Um, And I would, uh, you know, she wasn't cured. I don't know if she lived longer because of what we did than than not but she sure as heck lived better she lived better and and there was a part of sharon and i hope we can come back to this but there was a part of sharon that was well within herself even Mm -hmm. though she knew she was dying Mm -hmm. and her mom and brother and sister knew Mm -hmm. she Mm -hmm. was dying Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: well within herself for
0: me the key of what you did the fact the the essential of what you did were your own words. You treated her as a whole person. And I'm going to give you an example now from my own life because you talked earlier about how medicine can also be a mess. And I'm going to give you an example of my own life, which is the opposite of what Mm -hmm. happened with Sharon. About 30 years ago, I was riding on a motorbike with some people that I knew, and I came around a turn And a Winnebago was coming at me on my side of the road and it hit me head on and ran over me and crushed both of my legs. Oh my gosh. And it, yeah. And it's a whole story about how I saved my life, which I did and managed to, 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 to to get myself to an emergency room and I get to the emergency room and I'm laying there after they cut all my clothing off and, oh, by the way, when I was there laying on the highway. I try to lift my left leg and my left foot came up and hit me in the face. So I knew that the, the bottom, there was no connection. And the same was true of my right leg. They were destroyed. They were crushed because they were run over. So I'm in the, in the leg there in the emergency room. And all of a sudden I feel this incredible pull on my left leg and I scream. What was that? And this man comes over to me. I won't use his name. And he says, hi, I'm Dr. And uh, I just tried to relocate your left leg, which was completely dislocated. And I said, well, I think it would have been better if you introduced yourself before you did what you did. And he sort of, I don't know what to do with that. And he said, well, he said, we're going to have to amputate your legs. And I said, really? And he said, yes. He said, do you know what happened to you? I said, of course. I kept myself conscious the whole time. I was afraid not to, I thought I had to keep myself from going into shock and dying. And he said, well, you did a good job at that, but we're gonna have to amputate your legs. And I said, why? And he said, because you were run over, you know that, by a Winnebago, you could be bleeding out. I said, doctor, from the time I was run over to the time the helicopter came and the time the helicopter got me here, and by the time you came in, If I was going to bleed out, I would have bled out already. How is it that I'm talking to you? I think we need to do an angiogram and find out what's going on in my legs. He said, "Okay, I'll do that. He said, but you won't have you won't have control of your legs. He said, you can't. And I said, well, how come I can move my toes? And I showed him how I could move my toes. So they do the angiogram and he comes back with a look on his face and he says, I don't know how to explain it but your legs, the, your vascular system in your legs is intact. So I'll cut to the, the part of the story that I really want to tell you about, which is the first surgery, by the way, was 15 and a half hours to save my legs. I talked him into non-amputation and, and I have legs. And I'm in the hospital two days later and I'm running a temperature of 105. I'm in intensive care and the temperature comes down to 103. They take me out of intensive care. My temperature goes up again. They're going to start looking inside my body for the source of an infection. Meanwhile, my legs are up in a trapeze and they're fully encased. A, a nice young doctor comes in and he sits down next to me and with a pleasant look on his face. And he says, I've got great news for you. I said, What's that? He said, We looked all through your body. There's no sign of any blockage in your vascular system. You do not have an infection. We think the elevated temperature was your body's reaction to the lengthy surgery, and you're going to be walking out of here within a few days. And I said, would you mind saying that again? He says, you'll be walking out of here in a couple of days. I said, have you looked at the bottom part of this bed? Those are my legs up there. And he looked over and his face turned bright red. And he said, I said, do you think I'm going to be walking out in a couple of days? And he said, well, he said, nowadays, we specialize in certain things, and I'm sort of, that's outside of my specialty. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a true story. Oh, that's my goodness. Tr- I know. That's a true story. So that, the reason I tell it is because it's the other side of the continuum of whole person care. Right. He, he didn't have any sense of the whole person. He had a sense of what he was looking for, the source of the temperature. When he found that, that was enough to go on. Lord have mercy! I know, so I am one hundred percent with you on the importance of treating the whole person. And what I want to know with Sharon, oh, first of all, before I go with that question, tell our listeners what cystic fibrosis is, so they know what it was that this young lady was dealing. Oh, with. Oh, sure.
1: So cystic fibrosis is a genetic disease, and where the um, the mu- mucus that uh, our body produces, uh, particularly in our lungs. But also in like the GI tract, the the mucus that glands produce uh, in the in bile and and pancreatic uh, secretions gets thick, uh, and it's and people with cystic fibrosis have have this abnormal gene where uh, that they've inherited from both parents. You have to have two of the genes to to actually have not be a carrier but actually express the the disease. Uh, the it's the the um mucus is so thick that they can't clear it and it causes mainly lung problems uh, but it in Sharon's case and in many other people it can other cause other problems particularly in the in the GI tract
0: thank you that's that's helpful and it's it's always terminal within a certain period it, of time um it has
1: been yes uh people's uh, longevity, average life expectancy has changed dramatically uh, while I've been a physician. It used to be uh, rare that people uh, with cystic fibrosis lived to see their early 20s. Now people are in their mid-30s, some in their mid-40s even with it. Uh-huh. And and I fully expect that we're going to cure this one. I, I think that this is one of the, the uh, uh, diseases that um, gene therapies with CRISPR, you know, uh, a uh, therapy is a, is a um, a good target. Cystic fibrosis is an excellent target for these therapies. So I, I fully expect that, much like um, I think, is also going to happen with things like uh, sickle cell disease, where you have a single gene that's abnormal. That you know, I may live to see the cure for these diseases, but it, but it has been fatal and still is fatal uh, for people. Late stage cystic fibrosis. Some people qualify for lung transplants, uh, and and can live with a, a new lung, which is not an easy life either. But it it, you know, that's one of the very late stage treatments uh, for cystic fibrosis these days.
0: Now, getting back to Sharon, yeah, what what you did and what your team did for Sharon while she was getting the treatment for the cystic fibrosis and for the diabetes was you addressed, if I understand you, her quality of life, because what often gets forgotten, as I, uh, in my own example, and I have other examples to tell you about, is the treatment can go on, but the quality of life of the person while they're going through the treatment gets forgotten completely.
1: Yes. One of the things that I I emphasize in almost every lecture I give these days, and I try to really hammer home uh, in interviews and the the things uh, whenever I can address the public, is that um, without ill intention, doctors approach patients through a lens of their medical problems. We are are taught uh, to approach patients through their problem list. The the problem list is the table of content of every patient's chart. Um, But the fundamental nature of illness is not medical. The fundamental nature of illness is personal, right? It We know this when it happens to us. It entails the medical, of course, but the nature of illness is personal. And it's personal for every person with a serious diagnosis. But for every person who receives a serious diagnosis, the people who love that person share in the illness experience. It is This is personal. And when when I teach medical students and residents these days, I really hammer this home, because if you can see what we're doing in our our medical knowledge and skill set as part of human caring, but not the whole thing itself, understanding that we can bring medical expertise to the, to patients to make people's illness better, but But the illness is personal, and improving people's uh, quality of life, their lived experience with their illness, really makes a huge difference. I I hope that doesn't sound subtle, because in practice, it changes everything. A doctor who really gets it, understands that he or she has credibly important services to bring to bear based on the diagnostics and therapeutics and technical expertise that we have these days. But that is part of human caring, not the thing itself. Patient care has so much more to do uh, uh, than just the the medical and technical.
0: So in my specialty of clinical psychology, I tell patients and their families that when someone has a mental illness or has chemical dependence, the entire family feels it. Of Everybody course. is involved. And what I hear you saying is that when somebody has a very serious physical illness, the entire family feels it, as well as the whole person, in fact, it's the other way around. the whole person feels it, and the family feels it as well. Right. so there's a du- direct similarity there. It's not as if any of us have something serious
1: in a vacuum. How could it be? how could it be We are uh, you know uh, in your setup, you talked about we are we are social animals we, we literally uh exist in community with and in relationship with other people right even even uh, the most ardent hermit relies on other people for at least for their safety for protection for people for the elements or for people who would prey on that hermit but also you know probably for uh, all sorts of other aspects of their of their life how many people on your palliative care
0: team roughly were involved with Sharon and her particular case?
1: Oh, probably four or five. Four or five different people.
0: Yeah. I I think it's important to underline here something that you said earlier, which is even though four or five people were involved in her care, at the end of the year, when you add up the cost of all these four or five people and compare it to other forms of treatment, the country and the hospital are still money ahead because it ends up costing so much more without this kind of team approach. Right.
1: And, and and that's, that's because- a hard thing
0: to get across to the public, you know, because as soon as you hear four or five people, people are thinking four or five professionals involved. Wow, what a bill. It must be, you know, how do they possibly, and you're saying the opposite is true. And the, that's important. The way,
1: the way this makes sense is that, When people are well cared for in the context of their whole person experience, but in the context of their family, in the context of their household, whenever possible, they spend fewer days in the hospital. And that you don't have to um, diminish the area under the curve of hospital days during a patient's life to pay for a whole lot of care for their comfort and their quality of life and their family support and crisis management and crisis prevention and, you know, coordination of care and all of that stuff uh, really has tangible benefits because we, we diminish the need for them to be in the hospital. In addition to that, let me just wedge in that we're not trying to do this to save money. We're trying to do this to give people the best care possible. But in diminishing people's days in the hospital, we're also diminishing their risk of getting a hospital acquired infection, which in for instance in Sharon's case is absolutely devastating. Somebody whose immune system is already compromised with their disease, getting a hospital and fired acquired infection can be, you know, mean death. It diminishes the risk of them having delirium because people, we know that people are at high risk of getting delirium when they're in the hospital, have difficulty sleeping, they're in unfamiliar circumstances. Uh, and they, you know, that's a really um, serious complication of of illness and hospitalization. And, and a number of other uh, falls in the hospital, it's harder to fall in the hospital if you're not there, if you're at home, right? Uh, all of these known complications of late-stage illness can be diminished by by just giving people meticulous care for their comfort and quality of life and trying to meet their needs without requiring them to come into the hospital.
0: This this financial issue is, is fascinating. It, there was an experiment done in the state of Washington where they took chemically dependent people alcoholics and drug addicts off the street, homeless. And they put them in a special hotel, a low cost, very low cost hotel, and they gave them food uh, to eat. And at the end of the year, they found out that it was much less expensive for the city to have put them in the hotel and given them food than the cost that they were incurring by going to fire departments and emergency rooms on a chronic basis in order to get a little help. And yet, so a percentage of the public have this major outcry. Oh, you're putting people on the dole in a hotel and you're giving them food. What are you going to be doing next? You know, that You know that kind of negative outcry that comes from that kind of thing. And I think having the data that you have, that the palliative care is less expensive at the end of the year or the end of the day is extremely important, isn't it?
1: It really is. I, I've converted a number of... Um, uh, skeptical i would say some grading into cynical uh cfo's you know chief financial officers yes. by uh showing them the data and by encouraging them to stop using 20th century accounting methodologies in a 21st century world you know what i mean by that is that uh there's a number of of chief financial officers even today in the united states who will look at palliative care and apply a PL sheet, a profit and loss sheet to palliative care, and say, you folks never pay for yourself. You can't pay for yourself because you never charge enough to pay for the costs of, of your personnel, all these people. And I will come back and say, well, you're right. We never pay for ourselves on a PL sheet, but PL sheets are a pretty uh um inexact way of of accounting. Let's look at the total costs of people's care, right? And how much it's costing you as the CFO to care for people. Uh, during this, let's say, six-month period of time when they have serious illness. And when you look at it with and without palliative care, almost without exceptions, you find that the the return on investment is in the four-to-one to, to five-to-one range, that with palliative care, you are you are spending far less money, way in excess of the personnel costs. So,
0: we have a kind of political issue, don't we, with regard to, it's a combination of financial and political. But n- rather than get into the wheeze of that, people listening now, they're hearing us talk now for the last almost an hour, 45 minutes, about palliative care. And some of them are saying to themselves, is my mom or my dad or my uncle or my aunt or somebody in my family that they're aware of that has some severe illness, they how do we know when we're appropriate for palliative care? At what What do we have to hear from a doctor in order to say, hey, maybe I ought to ask for palliative care? Is that how it works? Do I, as the patient, ask for it? Or does the doctor who gives me this diagnosis that's serious enough bring in the palliative care team? Now, that's assuming that the doctor is hip to palliative care to begin with, number one and number 2 has a palliative care team available so in terms of the doctor doing it if it's the patient then a sophisticated patient can say to themselves well if my doctor hasn't mentioned it but i heard from dr Biok you know that uh, i should be looking right. maybe right. i should go looking so here's the example from my life 80 a year and a half ago i'm 82 years old i'm in prime condition i'm an endurance athlete open water swimmer And so I form a marathon runner. I get some tests and I'm told that I'm in heart failure. My ejection fraction is dropped from normal range down to 34. Ejection fraction, folks, is the percentage of volume that your heart pumps, your left ventricle pumps on each pump. It has to pump enough in order to supply oxygen to the system. If it doesn't, you go into what's called heart failure or it's called congestive heart failure. I was told I was in heart failure. Within a week, a biopsy that I called for on a pimple on my face that had been misdiagnosed for a year, and I finally said to my doctor, "I think you better cut that off and, and mail it in for a biopsy." I get a report. I've got metastatic melanoma of the nodular kind. Team, I go. Is- I go home and I look it up, and it says you can be gone in six weeks. I'm thinking, heart failure metatastic melanoma. Now, I can tell you the story of what happened with that, but that's aside from what I'm reaching out to you for. At that point,
1: was I a candidate for palliative care? Sure. You know, so you ask a great question. Let me me take a quick run at it. Um, Firstly, um, uh, if a physician brings up the potential referral to a palliative care program, one of the main things that patients need to say is, yes, thank you, right? Many people conflate palliative care with hospice. They hear palliative care and think that they are dying. No, they are ill and might benefit from this team approach for their comfort and quality of life and their family support, right? So that, that's one thing, you know, uh, lose the fear. This, this is just part of giving you the best care possible. There's this team of teams approach, which I think is really helpful, to think about when we're, when we have a, a serious illness. Um, I'm a big believer in second opinions when people get a serious diagnosis, third opinions, um, fourth opinions. Just make sure one of those consults, one of those specialty consults is with a palliative care team. Ask for it. It's not, it doesn't mean that you're giving up one thing to get another. You, you know, you you want the best care possible. And, and I I think in America today, as good as our healthcare system is, and I and I think our our healthcare system excels in some things, particularly highly technical diagnostics and treatments for, for diseases. Um, one has to advocate for self or those you love. Uh, it is we know our health system is is a, um, dysfunctional in some regards. There's a a lack of continuity uh 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 poor communication between various doctors who may be contributing to a patient's care. Uh lots of ways that people can fall through the cracks. So as an advocate, as as a good uh, I, I hate to use the term consumer, but but if you can think of yourself as a consumer of healthcare, be an assertive consumer. Don't take the first deal at face value. Get a second opinion. brought yourself off to another center to to hear it from somebody else, and and then ask by name for a, a palliative care consultation.
0: You're asking a lot of a
1: patient. We're we're in a situation in today where if you don't think if you think you're going to get the best care without advocating for yourself, you are naive. You're in a you're putting yourself in a disempowered uh, uh, position because it's not forthcoming. For many people in American healthcare today,
0: wouldn't we both advocate that when a person gets one of these diagnoses, they team up with at least one family member or somebody else to help advocate for them because they are the principal and they Without may question. be they may be anxious and upset and not able to be
1: the best advocate yes. for
0: themselves, but maybe a husband or a wife or a cousin or a friend
1: can correct. Yes. Isn't that Ex- something that we exceedingly important? Thank you for making the point. Yes, you need help. You 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 know, you need to have an advocate for yourself. You want you know uh, somebody, particularly if you're not medically sophisticated, you want somebody in the room to come with you for appointments. Maybe with a uh, one of these little MP three or MP four recorders to record the visit because it's really hard to hear everything that the doctor is saying. You want to write down questions that. Uh, and work with whoever your advocate is uh, as in a partnership, so that when you come to the doctor, you have a series of questions. Because once you're in front of the doctor, it's often really hard to remember what you were planning to ask. Write them down. It's remarkable how important that is. And then make sure you're getting your questions asked answered. You know, questions like, "Who do I call if I have a problem at night?" and I, I have a new pain that I can't identify or I develop a fever, do I call you doctor or do I call one of my other doctors? What do you? What am I supposed to do, right? Things like that. You, you shouldn't be leaving a doctor's office if it's in a heart a failure, you know, a cardiologist or a oncologist or your primary care doctor without having some clear answers to questions.
0: I want to underline what you're saying in bright red. I want our listeners to hear that what Dr. Ira Biak is saying is not just bring a person with you, which is what I've been advocating for many for decades, but he's saying go further than that. Record the interview if you possibly can and definitely take notes because it's an anxiety producing situation. We could miss important things. And he's giving us a a, a suggestion as to how we can handle that. And I I think it's an excellent suggestion of, of actually recording the interview. I'm a rather sophisticated person, and I came away from hearing those diagnoses and what went on afterwards, sort of scratching my head saying, nobody has ever even mentioned to me the possibility of counseling or talking to anybody in the world about how I might feel Feel right. about, exactly. um, about about not only getting these two potentially terminal diagnoses, but getting the two of them within a week of each other. <laughs> What an experience! My gosh, it was quite an experience. It was quite challenging.
1: Yes. Well, you seem to have been living with these conditions well.
0: Oh, I did more than live well with them, ira I conquered both of them. Uh, You know, we did a sentinel uh, uh, lymphectomy, and it turns out that the metastatic cancer never went into, even went into my lymph. I called my surgeon on the phone, and I got the results. I said, "How the hell did I have this thing for a year, and it didn't go all over my body?" And he said, "Richard." Your your immune system did a remarkable thing. It built a capsule around the around the cancer and prevented it from going anywhere. So that was number one. And then I had a PET uh, their seat scan to make sure the other you know small percentage that the uh, sentinel yeah. infectomy yeah. might not have picked up. And it was clear that took care of that. As far as the heart failure, I did the opposite of what my cardiologist would do. Respect. I have a great team at UCSF. Great, except for the fact that they never mentioned counseling to me, which I'm going to take up with them at some point. But uh, instead of reducing my exercise program, I doubled my exercise program wow. and I started doing cardi- uh, in my aerobics instead of three or four days a week for 45 minutes. I went back to my old routine of seven, six, seven days a week and uh, 60 minutes. And then I, I'm a clean eater, but I got even cleaner. And I did other things in terms of visual imagery. I tried everything I could, including some psychedelics. And six months afterwards, my my next echo, my uh, my ejection fraction was into the low normal range. Nice. Six month six months after that, it was still in the low no, normal range. I then added a four day a week weightlifting tr- uh, program. Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I had a retest on the echo. This is eighteen months now, and my ejection fraction is in the high normal range. Wonderful. And my and my cardiologist said, actually, she she said you're you're sort of fired. I don't need to see you. You're not a cardiac patient anymore.
1: Isn't that but, wonderful?
0: You know, that's all really great news. And and because but but the part that I that I'm uh, that's important in terms of palliative care is I really should have had someone assigned to me or being, be told that I should go talk to somebody about the psychological consequences, yes. not yes. just on myself, yes. but as you've pointed out, Ira, so well, my family, yes. no one ever spoke to my family about what it was like for them hearing that I had these du- two diagnoses and both of which were very serious. No one and- talked to my my wife, my children, etc
1: and there at ucsf is one of the premier palliative care programs among american academic healthcare so they have the capacity to to uh, counsel people like you
0: that's very interesting that it didn't take place so i want to come back to something that we talked about in the beginning of the program and that is your brilliant paper about the potential use of psychedelic medicines during end of life care and during palliative care thank you thank you for the correction see i'm 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 learning and i and i needed that correction during palliative care which as cousin edith pointed out is not necessarily end of life care
1: well cousin edith was actually in hospice care
0: that's right which, which right. we had
1: to fight with her uh, cardiologist to to refer even though she was acknowledged to be dying and they were they were done treating her for her cardiology, and you know I had a you know he thought I was absolutely crazy, and with with hospice care, she was able to accept her uh, physical therapy and she got home, she got less depressed, she started eating better, moving better, and she ended up you know doing well and and getting physically better and then the hospice people finally graduated her because she was no longer dying and uh and she went back to the cardiologist and said, "See." And he said and he said, "See, you weren't dying, you know so so i I was lost i mean from his perspective, I was wrong but um
0: but, but the fact that she had been in, uh, uh, accepted for hospice meant that they had seen that as a fait accompli that she was dying at that point
1: sure sure exactly had 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 her course not changed, had she not gotten significantly better, she would have gone on to die the even Medicare says." Uh, that qualification for hospice is having a disease that uh, has a six-month or less life expectancy if the disease runs its natural course. And that that line uh, applied to Edith qualified her for hospice care because if the disease had run its natural course, she would indeed have died. We changed the natural course by giving her meticulous attention to her symptoms, to her function, to her diet, uh, to her, you know, uh, physical therapy. And she got better rather than uh, getting worse. And this all occurred when, as I
0: recall, when she was about 82. Yeah. And she lived to at least 90 because you were dancing with her, I think, when she was 90 years old at that wedding.
1: Remarkably. Remarkably,
0: Folks, you have to read that story. You've got to buy this book, The Best Care Possible. You must read this. It's so so moving and touching, and it's a story of- You can't
1: make this stuff up.
0: You can't make this stuff (laughs) up. No, 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 you really can't. What's happening now is there's a renaissance, as I think you know, in psychedelic medicine, because for the first time in over 50 years, the government is finally allowing some research to go on in addition to to the little research that's been going on during that fifty-year period by those courageous people, uh, you know, who kept knocking on the door of the government until they finally let them do a little research, and you know what happened? You know, uh, uh, Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins did the brownbra- groundbreaking study with psilocybin and depression, and it sort of opened up the field. And there's more going on. And so, what's happening now? As you very aptly point out in your article. Again, it's in the the Journal of Palliative Medicine, two thousand and eighteen.
1: Well, you can. By the way, you can get it. Uh, I um uh I purchased the rights to it uh from the journal, and it's on it's on my website as well. Oh, so it's fantastic! Open so it's uh I have a website uh artly artfully named irabiock ir irabioc.org, and under articles there, taking psychedelic seriously is is up there as a as a PDF document. Um, Okay, folks, you, you want to
0: read this article. It's it's a it's IRA, and it's B-Y-O-C-K, irabyock.org dot Go there and read this article. It's, it's one of the best, if not the best, you're ever going to read. And see, what's fascinating to me, in addition to incredible amount of work you did, when you said it took three years to, to write this one book, I don't know how long it took you to write this article, but it's obviously, it took you a lot of time and, and I, I have a lot of respect for that. What you're pointing out is something that we're experiencing, those of us who are deeply involved with psychedelics. Namely, people all over the country are reaching out to psychedelic guides and psychedelic therapists. A lot of it under the table, a lot of it in places where it's legal, because there are now 16 places in the United States, 15 cities and one state that has decriminalized Uh, plant medicines. It was started with, you remember, uh, Denver and then Oakland and San Francisco, the state of Oregon, Detroit, there are many others. So we have a kind of a phenomenon going on where people are either traveling to these areas to get psychedelic treatment, or they're getting it, quote, under the table or sub-rosa where they live. And as you're cautioning us, People are coming into a lot of this therapy thinking they're going to get a panacea or they're thinking that, you know, this is it, one time and I'm cured. And what they're not realizing is the medicines themselves, at least in all the research and experience and personal research that I have for over 50 years, these medicines don't cure anything. What they do is they reveal a lot. And then it's our work in our own psychological therapy, in our own introspection to integrate what it was that was revealed to us and then create the healing process. But it's not as if we're going to go somewhere for a weekend or a week and something to give us a magic bullet. This isn't any more of a magic bullet than a lot of... Now, that's not to say that there aren't brilliant insights that have been achieved because in my second book, Psychedelic Wisdom, I've got lots of stories like you have in your book and and i have lots of stories in my case of of people having remarkable things happen as a result but yes. that doesn't mean, but that doesn't mean we know it all and basically what i hear you championing and correct me if i'm wrong is you're championing the cause for a lot more research and for the government to allow the research and to allow the scientists to really dig deep
1: y- yes indeed uh and i'm an advocate for Careful use of these drugs in a therapeutic setting we we use the phrase uh, psychedelic assisted therapies uh, These are not panaceas and they're not drug therapies in the usual way of thinking about drug therapy work. A drug is changing your metabolism and it and acts to correct some deficiency and when you stop taking the drug, the effect stops, and there's you know tissue toxicity or side effects uh when you're taking the drug uh, all of that that's it's not that these this is experiential therapy uh it is the the drug uh, enables an experience that is uh sometimes very very deep and and as you suggested it's it it is it's hard work uh this is therapy that engages people in the hard inner work uh that of the of the things that may be underlying their um uh, uh, psychosocial spiritual distress it 's real and and it 's powerful uh, and while there's no tissue toxicity to these drugs unlike you know your the blood pressure medication or antidepressants they're not it 's not that sort of thing uh, but they are they can be dangerous because they disinhibit people they make um, during the during the experience uh, some very scary things may come up that uh people need to be aware of and prepared for and have guides with them who are who are used to guiding people through these experiences in that careful setting the uh percentage of people who report that that these experiences were in were highly important and therapeutic for them is remarkably high and you, you know the data 60 to 80% of people in some studies say this has been one of the most important experiences of my life. Yes. Uh, So it's there, you know, this is big time medicine. I'm very worried that that, um, the change in the laws, the fact that these medicines can be, you know, uh, easily obtained these days, they can be grown. They're not plant medicine, by the way, only. It's because fungi are not plants so it's plant and fungal medicines quite well uh, just taken to be, uh, just to po- be i'm i've been corrected multiple times myself about that um but but i worry that uh, we may um uh, the, the the circumstances are there for serious abuse of these medicines these are not party drugs damn it and and they're not rave drugs and i'm really afraid that in unsupervised hands uh people who are using them for a high uh some very serious consequences can occur so whether it's in a medically supervised psych, you know psychologically guided uh context or within a religious or spiritual context where there's real discipline involved where people are screened they're carefully prepared, they are guided through the sessions they meet again with the the guide, whether therapy or or spiritual guide to integrate the experience. All of that is really necessary for these to be safe. We have an uphill battle in that regard, Ira. Yep. And, the, and, the, and the reason is,
0: when I was a little boy growing up in New York, the, a, a, lot, a lot of my friends were told in their religious services or wherever else that if we masturbated, then hair would grow on the palm of our hands and other bad things would happen. And so naturally, we all masturbated, and we never found anybody who had hair on the palm of his hands. So therefore, we questioned the sources and the religions that were spreading that kind of stuff. In the case of the psychedelics, why I think we have an uphill battle is we have millions of people who have used a street drug called ecstasy that may or may not be the same as laboratory MDMA. But certainly enough of the ecstasy had similar effects. And we had millions of people using and still are using this at raves. And they're not growing hair on the palm of their hands, meaning they're not dropping like flies. We have a few cases. We have cases here and there of that happening. We know less about what you might call a bad trip. We know more about it when they go to the emergency room because of overheating or they took the ecstasy in a hot tub. So what I'm saying is if the word on the street is, no, that's not what happens at raves. We don't see people dropping. These doctors are feeding us a line. We've got a problem there. And yet you and I do know that there are unwanted complications of these medicines. Uh, Unwanted complication of medicine is my terminology for side effects, because I don't think they're side effects. I think they're unwanted complications of medicines. And And we know that there are, and we're trying to to be cautionary because our way as professionals is safety first. Right. But we do have a bit of an uphill battle because so much disinformation has gone out there to the public. They just don't know who to trust anymore. You know that. It's true on so many things politically nowadays. The public doesn't know who to trust. They don't know which newspapers to trust. They don't know which television programs to trust. It's a, it's, a, it's a very serious situation that's been created here with regard to that, because trust is everything. Without trust, what do we have? We have people with, with high anxiety. And right now, as, as in my area, and I'm sure you've heard of it too, we're being informed that we have almost, if not actually, an epidemic of anxiety and depression. Every therapist I know every, in every city I know has a waiting list it wasn't that long ago that just going to therapy was a stigma and people hardly even, you don't want to tell anybody about it. Oh, you're in therapy. You know, that kind of thing. Now everybody's in therapy. So uh, we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, This disinformation issue is a really big issue, but this, but we're not talking disinformation when we're talking about palliative care and we're talking about something that the vast majority of us are going to need. So people listening, They're in, somebody's listening to this in Missoula, Montana. By the way, I'm going to take another sidebar. I knew someone in Missoula, Montana who told me that they actually brought horses into the hospital to to make nice with people the way in California we bring dogs into the hospital so that people have something to pet. And I never verified whether that was true, whether they actually brought a, a horse into a hospital in
1: Missoula. But let's say somebody uh, I don't know of, I don't know of that happening but it but it wouldn't make the news for for very long it wouldn't it wouldn't be that big a deal
0: yeah here so okay a person's wherever they are they hear us talking, who do they call first how do they make how do they reach out to find out if their relative is appropriate for who do, who's that first
1: call go to to find out if they're appropriate for palliative care? It really depends on who they're seeing. I, I, you know, I, I'm a big believer in, in people having a primary care physician, a family doctor. I would start there. Good. Uh, but but also, you know, if you're seeing a disease specialist, whether it's cardiology or neurology or oncology or pulmonology, whatever, um, asking there as well. Uh, don't be too off-put if, if uh, you see blank stares come back at you. You may need to, you know... Uh, uh, Google uh, palliative care at the local hospitals. Most palliative care these days is anchored within a hospital-based program, though they may well be seeing outpatients as well. But you're gonna, you know, it's gonna take some advocacy. Where we're at a stage in the evolution of this discipline where it does take some advocacy. There's, you know, one of the other things I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be self-promoting at all, frankly. But in on the irabioc.org website and under articles. There's an article I wrote called something like Five Things Every Family Should Know. And it's about what what to do if you or someone you love is diagnosed with a serious illness. And it, it goes through some of these steps of, of that you have touched on so very articulately today, Richard, of, of what people should do to to make the best of difficult situations.
0: I just want to challenge you on one thing you said, Ira. Yeah. You deserve and we need you to be self-promoting because what you bring to the table is so valuable to us and let you not be shy for promoting your website. People need to see your website. Your contribution is enormous and it's important that we get to see it. That's why I'm doing my little bit and having you here on Thank this program. It's, it is okay. it is important and you know that it really is important and you've got to know that that how important it is. And And, and look at the example of my own case. As sophisticated yeah. as I am, no one ever worked with my my wife and my kids, and and the threat. And I'm telling you that today, my, my, one of my daughters just came, just arrived, and she's here for a visit. And I'm as a result of this interview, I will bring up today at a family meeting the f- issue of how they felt when I got my diagnosis and how they uh-huh. handled it, because at least we'll do it now, even though it wasn't done then. And I think this speaks
1: for so many families in the country. Well, thank you for what you're doing to call attention to these issues, to my own work and, and the best care possible and the website, but also how, how many people you're reaching and educating about really important issues of our day. Really, thanks very much. You're very welcome. Is there anything, if you
0: left now and we closed, you might think to yourself, oh, shucks, I wish I would have added that one point. Take a pause. Take the time you need. And
1: while you're doing that, you're good? I, I think I'm good. I, I, I think the main point that I, I tried to emphasize earlier is that the fundamental nature of health and illness is not medical. It's personal. So while getting the best care, best treatments, going to the best medical centers and doctors and getting second and third and fourth opinions, doing all of that, please understand that this is personal and that your well-being is is something that you own it's not one cannot delegate that to the health system or any doctors and when you use the word personal
0: you really you mean psycho spiritual social including yourself and the family don't you
1: i do indeed and that's very important that definition i do indeed this is life this is not just medical it's our lives i think
0: those words are where we want to stop today folks In addition to having thanked Dr. Ira Bach for sharing all this important knowledge and wisdom that he shares with us after a 50-year career that he has, I want to thank you all for listening also and for participating in making Mind, Body, Health, and Politics possible. Without all of you, we wouldn't be here today. So check in with us again next week. We bring at least one program to you every week, sometimes two. The website's mindbodyhealthpolitics.com. Org. Until we meet again, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Oh!